Um, well, it's uh, getting towards the holiday season, and so next week is um, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and then we enter Thanksgiving week, and then if I understand right, that Sunday after Thanksgiving, your church has a special tradition. I think Lance got up and mentioned it, and people explained it, where people get up and share what they've been thankful for, where the Lord's touched them, their testimonies of answered prayer and God's grace and mercy, so that's awesome. We won't be with you that weekend because we're our daughter and uh, son-in-law and a couple grandkids and then our son in, in uh, Billings and everything are uh, going to be together that weekend uh, up in uh, Big Sky. Our daughter's a big um, skier, her husband is, and our two little grandkids who just go straight down the slope without turning because they're so little that if they fall, it's only a little ways. And so adults can't keep up with them is what I hear. So we're, we're excited to just be with them. And then, so that would be the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And, and really, in the official church calendar, that begins uh, Advent. Yay. yay. Oh, Advent. Yay. We have one fan of Advent. Uh, Advent uh, means uh, coming. It's a Latin word. It means a, a coming or arrival. And so it's a season when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, those, usually it's uh, four Sundays before Christmas, and uh, that you start celebrating it, and so you celebrate his first coming, and it's also in anticipation of his second coming, and so during Advent, there's readings from the scriptures that are usually in three different um, genre there. One is an Old Testament prophecy about the coming of Jesus. There's uh, out of the Gospels, usually, or the letters to Paul, a real message about his coming and what he's done. And then the third reading is usually a prophecy uh, about his second coming. And so it's for it's a time for us to celebrate. In the church calendar, it's been celebrated for a few uh, hundreds of years. It's the beginning of the year. So the Sunday after Thanksgiving in the church calendar is the January 1 of the church calendar. And so next Sunday ends up being the December 31st of the church calendar. And usually traditionally on the last Sunday of the church calendar before the Advent begins, it's usually talk about Christ the King, that he's coming and coming back to rule again as king. And some of our songs today talked about that. So. Hello. Oh, I dare you. All right, thank you. Ooh, I sound better. I sound more like God here. Duh. <laughs> kind of low. Ah, so anyway, what we, uh, Carolyn, uh, um, this week ordered uh, a couple things. What we'd like to, I'm just kind of prepping you a little bit, if you'd, if you'd and asking your permission, uh, is that we would like to set up an Advent ring on the stage, and that contains four candles, one lit for every Sunday of Advent, and then we've ordered Advent calendars for you to use with your family, where every day you open a little door, and there's a scripture there 
dealing with Advent. Sorry, you don't open it and get a new chocolate. Like the, the Advent calendars you buy. Is that one working now? I, I kind of, this sounds low for me. Hello. Oh, test. Yeah. Okay. This one's more like me. All right. Um, and so we will, uh, we will um, uh, hand those out so you can do that with your family during the week. And then uh, what we'll probably do, what we'd like to do is call upon the different families in the church to come up at the beginning or right after maybe in the middle of worship. However, Jackie and the other worship leaders work that out, I hope. We'll have a break and uh, a family will read a scripture for that Advent day, that Sunday. Light one of the candles. Then the second time, we're going to have to do two of them the first week because we're skipping the first week of Advent because you've made, that's a tradition here of doing your Thanksgiving uh, testimonies to the Lord. And so a different family or two will come up each week, light a candle, read a scripture, and then hopefully we could sing uh, an Advent carol. Jackie, are you out there? Oh, yeah. So Advent carols are different than Christmas carols. Like you never sing during Advent, joy to the world. Okay. Because Advent is anticipating his arrival. And so when you're saying joy to the world, the Lord has come. Not the Lord is coming. Doesn't say that. So you say, yeah, the Lord is coming. We, we could change that. But usually you save joy of the world for Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or after Christmas. So there are some Advent like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and some others like that. So uh, we, I just want, is that sound okay? Something you'd like to do as a as a church. It really focuses on Jesus, helps, helps our family. We raised our kids. So at our house, we had an Advent log and Advent has anywhere between about 22, 23 to 28 days in Advent, depending when Thanksgiving, uh, when the fourth Sunday before Christmas comes and what day of the week Christmas is on. So we have 28 holes in the log and we light a different candle every night and read the scriptures. And so by Christmas Eve, you have this perfect pyramid of candles on the ends that have been lit every night until you get to the one on Christmas Eve, which has not been lit. And it was a way to focus our family on the true meaning of Christmas, not just what do I get, okay, or the materialism that the world uh, sells. So uh, it's been a big part of our family and we love Advent and we have other fans of Advent here. All right. So uh, just a little prep there. But for the next uh, two weeks, what I'd like to do is go through Luke 15 with you because Jonah, which we just finished, has a real counterpart in the New Testament. And that's the end of Luke 15, which is commonly called the parable of the prodigal son, but should be more properly called the parable of the two lost sons. There are two sons in there that are lost. And so we will study that, but we'll probably do that one next week. And this week I'm going to do part A and B of the parable because Luke 15 is really a three-part parable. Oh, Carolyn, I have a, a folder there with papers. Do you see it? I'm sorry. I have notes for everybody. So could we have anybody like volunteer to pass these out? Like maybe down. Oh, there you go. Right behind you, Carolyn. You have a awesome servant there and so um just so you can follow along and i hope uh and you can write some extra notes down and uh this is kind of the gist of what i'm saying this has all of the parables on it uh, or the three parts a b and c of luke 15 so we're going to put luke 15 on the screen and we're going to read it here in a minute as soon as everybody gets your notes all right Thanks, guys. 
So I just want you to know you put an offering, you put a couple hundred dollars in the offering, and you get a piece of paper. So um, that's, you get paid back, yeah, okay. So I'd love for you to keep this paper for the next two weeks, if possible, because we'll go over the parable of lost sons later. So this is just generally the big, the big uh, rocks of what I'm talking about. So before we read Luke 15, uh, let me explain uh, that at the top of your notes there what a parable is. A parable is not, a, is not two Hereford male bulls. That's a parable's. Um, this is a pair of parables. Okay. Yeah, we're not talking about a pair of bulls. And okay, but we're talking about parables. So uh, at the very top there, um, kind of calling this whole couple weeks in Luke 15, the recklessly extravagant love of God. And uh, so there's a definition of a parable that I adapted from um, a great website if you want to find out some answers to some theological questions you may have called gotquestions.org. And it says, a parable is literally something cast alongside something else. It's a helper. It's the literal translation of that word in the Greek is to be cast alongside. So Jesus's parables were stories that were cast alongside a truth in order to illustrate that truth. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So of all the gospel writers, Luke records more parables of Jesus and his teachings than any other gospel writer. Matter of fact, there are parables in Luke that are not contained in either Matthew, Mark, or John. They're only in Luke. So Luke was a physician. He, uh, we don't see him in the original list of the 12 disciples, but he hung with Paul. And he interviewed all of those disciples or the disciples, uh, the people who had been taught by the original disciples or apostles. He interviewed them, put together his gospel, even though he didn't walk with the original 12. And then he also wrote the book of Acts. As he traveled with Paul, Luke uh, followed Paul, and Paul was an apostle later on than the original 12 called to be. And so Luke, of all the Gospels, of all the, sorry, of all the writings in the New Testament, Luke has the most words of anybody, even bigger than, than um, Paul. And so he is a major author in the New Testament. And so he writes these parables, and they mean a lot. And he understands it's something cast alongside to help us understand a spiritual truth with an earthly illustration. So now let's read Luke 15. And before we do, let me pray. So, Lord, as we come and review these stories, these parables, these cast-alongside illustrations, may it help us understand spiritual truths. Jesus, Luke 15 is so uh, famous for three parables that, Lord, we want to um, have our hearts open. Jackie already prayed, Lord, that our hearts would be open, that we would receive your truths, and that, Lord, we would be... Um, changed by your word. We would put on the mind of Christ. We would know you. And Lord, not only let it be knowledge to us, but let it be transformation to us. Thank you for sending your word, and you have promised that it would not return to you void without accomplishing the purposes of it. So thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.
Amen. Okay, so Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep. Now, let me say one thing. Uh, I mostly like to look at Luke 15 as one parable that is three parts. Because look that verse uh, 1, 2, and 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then verse 3 said, Then Jesus told them this parable. Now, it's not plural. There are three stories that Jesus is going to share in this setting of the tax collectors and sinners gathering around him. And so uh, I believe it's one parable in three parts. Part A is the, is the part of the lost sheep. Part B is of the lost coin. And part C is the parable or the story of the two lost sons. All right. Suppose, and so he, he launches out into the first part A of the parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, before we go further, I got to explain this over here because this is helpful. All right, so during our little break there, we quickly set up this little table to represent this, the setting of this teaching. And so imagine that this table is a lot bigger with maybe eight to 12 men uh, sitting around this table, eating with Jesus, and they, they are listening to Jesus, drawn to Jesus. They are the outcasts of the church of that day. They are, not a lot, they are really frowned upon to go into the, the synagogues, to go into the Jewish gatherings of the very learned men. They are the traitors. Tax collectors are traitors. They were Jews who were recruited by the Romans to say, you're going to collect taxes from your people, and you're going to give it to the Romans so that we can enforce our laws, keep the roads open, provide sanitation, all the things the government does. But you also allowed, if you can take, if you can collect more than what we're asking, you get to keep it. So, a little different than our IRS today, though you may feel the IRS is like that, taking more than they deserve. But the tax collector, the more he kind of had relationship with the people, the more uh, power he had, the more he could extort people and say, your taxes uh, this month are 100 bucks. But really, Rome's only taxing that business maybe 80. So he puts 20 in his pocket. And so the average Jewish person knew that tax collectors were corrupt. It's how they made their living. They weren't paid by the Roman government for collecting taxes. So how they got their pay is by charging more taxes and then taking the extra for themselves. And of course, this was supporting the Roman occupation, the enemies who were there and the people who uh, they didn't like. And it, it would be like uh, for us, maybe like uh, having, an, having the Taliban running our country and then one of us gets uh, recruited by them and starts coming back and collecting taxes uh, from us to support this regime that's kind of taken over our country and almost terrorists. All right. So they're they're gathered around Jesus. It said in that first three verses, uh, they were sitting around Jesus. They're at a table. So you got to imagine that Jesus now teaches these parables to these guys standing in the door. So over here, these Pharisees and scribes 
what we would call the, the leaders of the church of that day, the religious people, are looking in and muttering and saying, look at Jesus. He's eating and conversing with these people who we don't even want to, want to be in church. And when you sit down and eat with somebody, it's in a, in a way making a covenant relationship with them. It's including them into your family, into your circle of influence. Eating in the Bible is more than when we just have somebody over to dinner or whatever. It means that you accept them in totality. I think that's what happens when you have somebody over to dinner. But you, you are saying that I even associate with these people who are sinners, who the, who the Pharisees and Sadducees would never sit down and eat with, because one thing, it would look like they're sinners too. Secondly, they would become polluted by their sin, and they need to be holy people. So we see that today among us as Christians. We kind of don't eat with certain people, or we don't gather them into our homes, and we gather in people to our homes and celebrate with them and eat with them or ask them out to dinner because they're a lot like us. But Jesus comes to associate with these people, and it's freaking out the, the leaders of the church because they're, they know his teachings are incredibly deep. They know he's a prophet, and how can he hang with these people? And so um, this, this is uh, really messing with them. It's scandalous. And so then he says, I'm going to tell you why I'm eating with these people. And so what he speaks in, these, in this three-part parable is not really to the sinners and tax collectors gathered around this table. It might have been the pimps of that day, the tax collectors. They're all drawn to Jesus. They want to know God. They want to know love of God, but they're excluded from knowing it in the church because they're not welcomed there. And uh, he leans over, and I can see Jesus sitting in one of these chairs and going, I'm going to tell you guys why I'm eating with these people. And then he teaches this parable of the lost sheep first. Okay, so let's go back to it. I kind of had to back up there for a minute and tell you why I put this table up here with your beautiful green plates that Justin said have been here ever since the church has opened, right? <laughs> so these are the indestructible things that last forever. Okay. Okay, here we go. So you should be familiar with this. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let's see the next screen. Okay, let's go back to that screen, that parable of lost sheep. Let's talk about this before we go on to the second one. First of all, a flock of 100 was a common-sized flock, from what archaeologists can tell, looking at sheep pens been uncovered in Israel and in the Middle East, plus descendants of sheep herders and even today, a flock of about 100 was a normal flock. Now, the problem with this parable, this part of the parable, is that all these guys sitting at the table here would have identified with the shepherd because shepherds were also outcasts. There were two groups of people that were not allowed to testify in a court setting 
or in a indictment or as witnesses against somebody else because they were not deemed worthy enough or trustworthy enough to be witnesses testifying against a crime or in favor of somebody. And those two groups of people were shepherds and women. Shepherds and women were not allowed to enter in to formal uh, witnessing of either in favor of somebody or against somebody. That's why at the end of all our Gospels, who are the first people usually at the tomb that find out Jesus has risen from the dead? Women. If somebody was trying to make up a story to convince people that Jesus had risen from the dead, they would not use women. Because that would not verify your story. It wouldn't be believable. And so it's one of our proofs that Jesus really did rise from the dead because the most unlikely witnesses of that are women and God uh, didn't come to tell us a story or there's no way that that could be um, thought of as false because to use women as the witness would be a sure way to kill your religion than to build your religion. And so it gives more veracity and belief to the resurrection of Jesus in a, in a roundabout way. Do you see that? Because he chose women to be there first. So that's scandalous too. Everything Jesus did was scandalous. It just, you know, it talks about he makes people stumble. He makes people fall because everything he does is counterculture. Everything he does is against what normal people are thinking and how the culture runs. So notice the first two parts of this parable is a parable of a lost sheep about a shepherd and the second one is about a woman who lost a coin so Jesus starts this teaching to these Pharisees and Sadducees and leaders of the church with two scandalous stories he's talking about a shepherd and they would have said oh my gosh why is he talking about that those guys are scum but everybody sitting at this table would have leaned in because going you you are giving a clout and and, uh, and believability to shepherds by telling us part of the spiritual kingdom principles can be illustrated through a shepherd. So they would have felt very comforted because they're outcasts too, just like shepherds. All right, so it says there, 100 sheep loses one of them. And the one thing we don't understand very much or see in here, that in those days, there was usually a chief shepherd that watched over the flock and he had assistant herders. Okay, so when he goes off, and leaves the 99 uh, in the open country to go after the lost sheep until he finds it, he probably has some under-shepherds, some herders, they were called, watching over the 99. So he hasn't left them unprotected. He has uh, gone after that one sheep. Now, uh, I found this kind of, I've always wondered about this going, 99, isn't it? Wouldn't it be better to keep, you know, 99 uh, sheep in the pen is better than one out there and uh, why is it worth it to, to sacrifice your life days taking your sheep to market whatever it is to go look for one and so I was asking God about this and he brought me back to the heart Carol and I have for our kids so we have five children so if we went hiking or camping and then we woke up in the morning and one of our kids went fishing and we're all sitting around breakfast and he doesn't return and he's lost, and we yell out his name. One of our sons' name is Tim, so I can just say, Hey, Tim, Timmy, where are you? 
and he doesn't come back, and we look for him a little bit, I, I probably wouldn't come back to Carol and said, don't worry about Carolyn, we still have four. Yeah. Right? I mean, none of us, it's like, what the heck, we still got four, and hey, we could have another one. You know, what the heck, we can replace. So, do, and so the love of God is being shown here to these Sadducees and Pharisees that are looking in, and even though they wouldn't have been very familiar with shepherds in their hearts, he is illustrating something that they probably in their culture would have been familiar with, that every sheep's important, every uh, animal's important, and I know today, like in Billings, when I talk to ranchers, I'm sure it's the same here, you lose one cow, man, that's a big loss. It's worth, a, you know, a lot of money. And so the same thing's going on here. So they leave the 99 and go out and look for the lost sheep. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and they have a party. So the idea is this shepherd so loves his sheep, he doesn't even make it walk home. He doesn't punish it. He doesn't say bad sheep, bam, 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 and say drag him home on a rope and teach him a lesson. He puts it on his shoulders and say, I'm just happy you're home. And then I have found my lost sheep. He has this party. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus is saying to these guys looking in the door over here, saying, there is more joy in heaven over one of these who comes to me than there is over all of you that are already seeking God and want to know who he is. You may not receive me as Messiah yet, but I will show you by being crucified and raising from the dead, that I am him. So Jesus has hope that these guys are going to come to realize who he is. But he's saying these people have come home and want to know God and are feeling welcomed by me. And so there is a party in heaven. And after one sinner repents, there is a great rejoicing because the sheep's come home. Now look at your notes there. And it says uh, that first part, the parable of the sheep, the shepherd is, is God. Obviously, this shepherd represents God. The lost sheep are those eating with Jesus who have not felt that they were qualified for God's love and rejected by the church of that day. The 99 are the Pharisees and scribes looking in. The lost matter to God, and they should to us. And there is a party. The lost matter to God and should to us. There is a party. Okay, I repeat that twice. They're just uh, why there is a party. And so we want to have the heart of God. We want to know that we matter to him and that we've been lost. Now, in thinking about this, um, first of all, Jesus sitting with these people would be scandalous because of Psalm 1, verse 1. Does anybody have that memorized, Psalm 1, verse 1? Blessed, we know it starts with that. Blessed is a man. Okay. Let me read it out of the NIV. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sinner, stand in the way sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. And so Jesus is sitting here in violation of Psalm 1 verse 1. You're blessed if you don't sit with these people, if you don't walk with them. So he is not violating scripture. What he's saying is he's not, he's not taking on their nature he is trying to give them his nature. So it's one thing for us now 
that we are Christians. I think we're saying it. To, we're free from the fear of God. We're free of being dragged down holes. And that we now are salt and light of the earth. And we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And so we can sit with mockers and sinners and those that don't follow God as long as we are having the influence. We also know we can spend too much time there and we can get drawn into an, to their lifestyle and lose our influence. So there is that balance. But that's why it is so scandalous. Now let's talk about the sheep part. It says uh, in Isaiah 53, it says these words. Um, the oppressed, uh, let's see, for we were like sheep all gone astray, trying to find it here, pose a figure, you love like slaughtered little sheep. Oh, as a sheep, I just read it a minute ago. Um, Isaiah 53, he took our pain, I bore our suffering, yet, yet we considered punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquity, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds are, we are healed. Then it says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray, each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the religious people of that day would have understand, in Jesus reading Luke 15, that he is talking about Isaiah 53, and that we have sheep have all gone astray. You can lose your way away from the flock of God by just wandering in your own way. Most sheep are lost by shepherds by grazing. They graze over a hill, graze down the other hill. They're just interested in the food. They look up. They do not see the shepherd anywhere around. Then they are disoriented. Sheep, I guess by nature, are pretty dumb from what I've talked to shepherds. And that is why the shepherd used to stand on the hill with his big shepherd's staff and crook. Because the sheep could, even over the crest of a hill, might see that stick standing up and know that's where their shepherd is because they felt safe around the shepherd because he protected them. Jesus talks about that. My sheep know my voice. And he knows us by name. And so that care of a shepherd to the sheep was important. But this sheep had wandered so far away, he wasn't able to get his bearings again. And so the shepherd go looks for him. And that's what can happen to all of us. I started out as a young boy loving God in the church, but I wandered in my own way. I chose to have my own agenda. I chose to live my own life and to wander on my path. I always looked for the shepherd's crook on the hill. I always kind of wanted to know where God was in my life, but I still continued to wander until that day when I got on my knees and gave my heart to the Lord and surrendered to him, say, Lord, take over my life, not my will, but your will. I came home to the chief shepherd of my life. And so that is the illustration here. Now let's go and talk a little bit about the parable of the lost coin. This is probably a little harder for us to understand. The parable of the lost shepherd has um, really been understood. Hey, can you, uh, Michael, can you go down to the picture of the lost shepherd first? All right, so there's a, a typical scene of what it might look like in the Middle East during this time of the shepherd. And notice the sheep are not really white there. They were raised not just for their wool, but for their meat. And um, probably a whole different uh, uh, breed than our sheep we see in America and so he had wandered over, and notice how sparse it is, and sheep had to wander a long way to have enough food for themselves. Okay, let's go to the next picture. So this is kind of a little harder to see. I hope you can see it. It's a famous stained glass window. Uh, I, not, I can't remember what church it's in, and there's a woman, and you can tell she's looking down. 
She has a broom in one hand. She has an oil lamp or a candle in the other hand, and she's looking for a lost coin. Now, most people believe that they use the broom to look for lost coin because if you hit it, it would tinkle in, in the hard mud floor. It would make a sound. Or among, if you were really upper class, your floor was made out of cobblestones. And so many times the coins fell between the cracks, and sometimes the broom would sweep it out or make it at least clink against the stones to find this lost coin. And houses in that day were very dark. You know, they didn't have glass yet. And if they had any openings or windows, they were probably shuttered and closed or had maybe a form of oilcloth or skin from an animal over it, a very maybe young goat where the skin's very thin. It would be translucent, let light through. But we're talking dark houses with little lamps. LEDs were just a few years away yet from this. But they were... They were uh, it was hard to find this coin. Okay, let's go back and read the parable of the lost coin. Or suppose a woman. Now, right there, people would be freaked out again. Even the people sitting at the table with Jesus and go, now he's going to talk about a woman to illustrate spiritual principles? This is a prophet, a man of God. Women and shepherds are not people we use in our society for examples because they're discounted. They're considered not as worthy as the learned people, as the scribes, the Pharisees, the business people, the men of that day. And so now he goes with a uh, parable of a woman. Now let me tell you one other thing if you want to read through the Gospel of Luke. Luke has this habit or a, I guess, a pattern in his writings. He usually tells a parable or a story or a healing about a man, and the next parable story or healing is about a woman. He always alternates men and women. Of all the writers in the New Testament, Luke saw the equality of men and women. He always followed a man's story with a woman's story to give them value, to show the people who read the scriptures that we are joint heirs with Christ Jesus. In Galatians, Paul writes, there is neither men nor women, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, we are all one. The foot of the cross is level, and we are equal. Luke, above all people, does that. The second thing Luke does, if you're trying to lose weight, do not read Luke or Acts. It all revolves around meals, okay? Almost everything he brings up of an encounter with Jesus has to deal with hospitality and meals. And so, this is uh, one of the variables of that. In this parable of the lost coin, there is no meal involved here except a party to rejoice that the coin was found. And so at a party, the meal is served. We see at the setting of this three-part parable, there is a meal being served to the sinners and tax collectors. And in the parable of the lost sons, we'll read about the big feast that was to be thrown because the, the one lost son returned. Okay? So just in context... This is Luke and why he's talking about a woman. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses them. Now, I got a little bracket with an A there for footnotes. And so what most scholars believe that these 10 coins were what for this woman? Does anybody know? Her dowry. Very good. And I, a dowry is a what? Does anybody know what dowry is? 
Well, okay. Um, I, I used to think is what? Yeah. So a man will pay for his wife like 202 camels or something like that, okay? I will give you that to buy him from the dad. That's called the bride price. The dowry is money that a woman brings into the marriage and contrary to our belief that the man goes, all right, my wealth has increased, is not the purpose of a dowry. The dowry is brought to the man. The man is to keep it safe and allow the woman to watch over it because if he perishes, her and the children can be taken care of. In other words, there was no life insurance in those days. Our way of dowry today is any man with a wife and children who depend upon his income, it is wise to get life insurance so that if he passes away, his wife and kids can be taken care of at least till she gets trained into a, a kind of uh, profession that she can make money or until the children get out of school or go to college or whatever. We do life insurance to do what a dowry used to do. The dowry was brought in, and I'm sure the more money in the dowry made it, you know, made the husband feel better, like it kind of increased his wealth, but it never was to be used by him to buy a new gun before hunting season, okay? Or a four-wheeler, okay? So I took your dowry and look at the four-wheeler I got, okay? That or the truck or whatever, okay? It was, it was used, and the man, I imagine, you know, I'm sure there were some husbands that weren't honest and some husbands that pilfered the dowry, but the purpose. So now they believe these 10 coins that this woman's looking for is her dowry, and she loses one of them. So it's important. Just think of one-tenth of your Social Security plan if your husband passes away, and in those days, it was like today, men usually died much younger than women, that this would be pretty panicky. This would be like, oh my gosh, I got a lot of children, and if I don't find this coin, this could make life really rough for me in my old age, or my children won't be provided for, and we're going to have a tough time. So this is an important thing, and everybody hearing this, this second part of this parable would have understood. The Pharisees and scribes at the door, and also these sinners and tax collectors sitting with Jesus. All right? Now, doesn't she light a lamp? sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. So isn't that what happens? He's just going, that's a rhetorical question. You guys know she would go looking for it because this means so much to her. And the house is dark, so she's got to light a lamp, and she's sweeping. Most people believe the sweeping action was not, you could bury the coin. It was to hear the coin tinkle if she, could, if it, if she can't see it. Verse 9, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, in both part A and B of this parable, we can see that our God is a searching God. So let's read the notes there under the parable of the lost coin. A woman is a focus. That's a great reversal of that day. Ten coins most likely represent the woman's dowry. The woman is God, which was also a little scandalous. What was the book written a few years ago where God, the shack? If you've never read the shack, how many people read the shack in here? Anybody read the shack? Okay. It's pretty, uh, some people have called it scandalous. Some people say it's weird, but 
I really thought it was great because our God has both, both, remember he's a spirit. He's not a man nor a woman. He is a spirit and we call him father a lot, but he also refers to himself. I wanted to take you under my wings as a hen takes her chicks under wings for protection. I want, I want to feed you spiritual milk. Many of the ways God talks about himself through the writings of scripture are in his feminine nurturing aspect too. And so this also represents that the way a woman looks for something like a man never does. I know in my, is, oh, I can see that hits home here. Is that right? It's home. I'll tell Carol and I can't find something. It's gone. Somebody, my biggest words is somebody stole my, she go, why would they steal that? You know, with everything. And so she, I just give up. I go in the corner and pout. Pretty soon she comes out. It's right where you left it. Right? Is that kind of, yeah, yeah, okay. So women are better searchers than men. And so everybody sitting at these tables would have known that. And God is a searching God. All right. And uh, the lost. So the woman is God. The lost coins are the sinners and the tax collectors. So again, over here, these guys are overhearing Jesus talk to these other guys. Oh, we must be these coins he's talking about. And we must be important to God. And he's searching for us. And he wants us to be reunited with all the other coins. So God does what does whatever it takes to find us. It's a party reflecting the joy among the angels when a sinner repents. And so one of the few parables that doesn't have a meal actually served in it, but this party, which we assume also has food, because that's how parties were, it just doesn't directly mention that. Now, some people believe these three parables represent the Trinity. So you have the shepherd, the lost coin woman, and the father in the third part, looking for his two lost sons, especially the one that went away. So the shepherd would represent what part of the Trinity? The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Son, because he's called the Great Shepherd. And then the woman in the parable of the lost coin probably represents what part of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit, who searches and finds us and his gentle and tenderness, and as our paraclete in the Greek comes alongside of us, nurtures us, empowers us, just like a mother does, the Holy Spirit, and then obviously the father looking for his lost son would be Father God, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Some people believe, now there's no proof that Jesus was trying to do that. The Trinity is also a mystery that any kind of metaphor or any kind of earthly picture pales in, in the light of what it truly is. We, how can there be one God in three? Uh, and, but you can see, I think it makes a lot of sense to say this represents Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father, the three parts of at least part of their function of the Trinity. Now, uh, let's go on. Okay, we're going to read a, about um, this a little bit and, but we'll talk more about it next week. And we'll close by just the reading of the parable of the lost sons. And I want you to see why it's been entitled Lost Sons instead of the traditional parable of the prodigal son. First of all, what does the word prodigal mean? I, I, I totally had the meaning wrong most of my life in the church. Now I really scared you. Yeah, like, I'm probably wrong too. Uh, Anybody know what that or Googling it real quick? Um, 
So prodigal, which some of our Bibles have listed as a title, means wasteful, uh, very, uh, uh, what do you call it, a spendthrift. I mean, just uses money unwisely, very uh, loose, just like wasteful lifestyle, wasteful. So for to be called the prodigal son, I always thought prodigal son meant coming home, son. If anybody asked me what prodigal meant, I would have raised my hand really in third grade and said, teacher, it means coming home. And she would have went, eh, okay. And it doesn't. I would have lost that one on Jeopardy. So the, the, it means wasteful. So the parable of the prodigal son is focused on the son who gets his inheritance early and he runs away with it and wastes it. It says on prostitutes, we'll read about it, loses it all. Okay. Now, why that's an inadequate title for this part C or three of this three-part parable is because this parable is mostly about the father and his love, and there are two lost sons. And we'll see that as we read through it. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him through the binoculars as he was looking for elk. His father saw him a long way off and was filled with compassion, put down his rifle and said, this nothing matters more than getting my son back. So he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. So here's a feast, a meal. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So you can see it says here, he was a lost son. He was lost in relationship to the family. In all of Scripture, when somebody is either lost or dead, it doesn't mean lost like we can't find them or dead like they're physically dead. It means they're lost or dead in relationship. Lost or dead in relationship. So in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, he said, if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. It did eventually cause physical death and her humanity, which we all face today. 
but he meant immediately also you will die in relationship to me in the closeness you had and you'll be cast out of my presence out of the garden of eden so when the son when the father says the son of mine was dead that doesn't mean physically dead it means he was so broken in relationship with me it's as if he didn't exist anymore but now he is alive again he's come back into relationship with me he was lost it's not that I may have not known where he was. I'm sure this father had many connections, may even known where the son was, may have even known about his suffering and his lowly job of feeding the pigs. But he said he came home to me and he is found. So he began to celebrate. So let's go on. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked, what's going on? And the servant says, your brother's come. He replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Man, your dad's just gone nuts in joy. It's awesome. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So this is the beginning of seeing that the older son is lost. He's lost the heart of his father. He is, doesn't understand the love of his father. And since this parable is about the love of God... It means we too can be out of step with what God loves. So he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded to him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What do you notice about verse 30, the elder son? How does he refer to his younger brother? Of yours. He doesn't say my brother. He's saying he's so mad. He, dis, he even disowns the relationship of this young, if his younger brother has come home. He's saying he's no brother of mine. He's your son. All right. And so verse 31, but notice how the father responds. He says, but my son, he still called him son. The father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now let's go to the last picture. All right, so this is Rembrandt's famous painting that hangs in St. Petersburg, Russia today in the art museum there. Rembrandt was called the, the painter of light, and you can see, well, first of all, this painting is about the size of an 8-foot to 10-foot garage door. It is gigantic. It would fill the front of this church. And it is faded and has become dirty over the years that Rembrandt painted it. There are people in the background that you cannot see very well on this slide, especially with the lights on. But I want you to notice who's the on the left, the person in the red robe, who do you think that represents? The father. And he's got his arms around, his hands around somebody on the shoulders, and that represents the, the young, which son? The youngest son. Then you have on the right, a man standing. You can't see, but he's got a, he's got a, uh, he's got a staff or a pole in his hand. He's got it there, if you can sort of make that out. And he has a red robe, so who does that represent? The who? The eldest son, the one that's really angry and mad, okay? And then we have some other people sitting there who are probably other members of the household, other workers <coughs> of this man. And uh, 
of, of this father's house. He had an estate. He had enough to give away the inheritance early. And so this was probably a fairly wealthy household, very prominent in the community. And so there's other people listed here. And there's even in Rembrandt's painting, way in the back, invisible to us with the lights on and off this poor copy off the internet, a woman standing back there. If you Google this picture this week, there are pictures of it that you can make out a woman in the background. Now, Rembrandt painted this, and we're going to talk about this painting in detail next week because it speaks a lot of how Rembrandt and the theologians of that day, I think this was painted in the 1500s, of how they saw the parable of the lost sons. And we'll talk a lot about this. But suffice it to say that, at, so let's go back to the last slide of the scriptures, Michael. Okay, so notice at the end of this, it's just like the end of Jonah. Jonah's standing over a hill, waiting, hoping God still judges Nineveh. God instead is giving them mercy. And remember, he had Jonah grew a plant over him to protect him, then sent a worm for it to die. And he said, you cared about the plant. And why shouldn't I care about the 120,000 in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from the left? They don't even understand why they have problems in society, why their society is so violent. And I even care about the animals that are within their group. And it just ends there, unresolved. It doesn't say, Jonah doesn't get up and go, oh, I got it now. You love those people, awesome. I, I'm so glad you had mercy on them. It just leaves it flat. Did Jonah ever get the lesson? This ends the same way, and that's why scholars say that this parable of the two lost sons is kind of the parallel in the New Testament to Jonah in the end. Because the eldest son, we don't know what happens to him. We have no idea if he ever comes into the party, is he continues to be outside, and if he continues to be outside the celebration of the father, he too is lost. This story is about two lost sons. And to the people sitting at this table, which son would they have identified with? These are the sinners and tax collectors. Would they have said, oh, we're like the younger son, or are we like the oldest son who's the religious good guy? Youngest. Youngest. They would identify. And so all these men looking in at Jesus eating with sinners would have become furious because they knew this elder son represented them. And he's not saying you're welcome. Unless you join the party that, that the Father God has sent me to do and that the Holy Spirit is searching for people to do, unless you join this party, you too may be left out the house on the judgment day and when the door shut. And so they are shaken, and they should be. And I imagine they walk away, we're not going to listen to this guy anymore, and they begin to say, this guy's got to be put to death. Because that, now what's amazing, we're going to discuss next week, is the eldest son, this is the first, well, I don't know if the first, one of the main times in scripture that we can come to realize you can be a, you can sin by being good. The eldest son is good. I've always done what you said. I've always taken care of your flocks. I didn't run off with your money. I haven't squandered my inheritance. But the father, he still ends up being in sin because he will not repent of his hard heart. He will not join the party of God. And so we're going to explore that next week. And so I'd encourage you, if you want a little homework, you can take the rest of the notes, the parable of the lost son, and kind of go through this parable this week, maybe read it a couple times, and ask God to reveal to you. 
And I want to tell, I'll give you one, one um, caveat right now. One, get you off the hook. In all of us, there is both young son and old son at the same time. Some of us are born being more like the younger son. Some of us are born being more like the oldest son. And so I want you to know, but they can coexist in us. You may be 60, 40%. You may be 70, 30%. But I want to tell you, you're never completely oldest son and you're never completely youngest son. And you can go back and forth very easily. And we can go from this table saying, Jesus has received me in all of my sin and how I didn't deserve his grace. We can leave this table, stand up and go sit with those people and stand with them in judgment of the people God loves. And so this has been a great lesson for me to say, Lord, I can never underestimate my, my propensity to vacillate between understanding your heart and getting self-righteous. Between thinking, I've arrived, and the clubhouse is full, and we don't need anybody else. Or, I don't want to hang with that person or those people because they'll pollute me. Or, they're not worthy of loving. They're the women and the shepherds of today. And so I'm going to close in prayer and just ask that you spend this week, and I will do it too, that we will not be left outside the house. There's so much to talk about this third part of the parable and we have far from exhausted it and we'll do that. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you search for us even when we've gone astray. We are like sheep, Isaiah says, who have gone astray into our own way. And that Jesus, you came over the hills. You left everybody else to come after us. And Lord, you didn't chastise us. You didn't drag us home on a rope to teach us a lesson. You threw us on your shoulders and came home and threw a party. And there was a party in heaven the day that we gave our lives to you. And Lord, if there's someone in this room who has yet given their heart to you, I ask that this day they would say, Jesus, take my heart. Come, I want to come home and be with you. I too have been lost but I want to be found. I too have been dead in relationship with you, but I want to be made alive. And Lord, thank you, Holy Spirit. You are part of the Trinity that comes to search and to look for us and to lead us and to sweep the farthest recesses of, of the darkness to find us and to reinstate us to the treasures of heaven. And that, Lord, we are important to you. Lost people matter to you. And, Father, as we explore your heart next week in fuller detail of your reckless love, I pray we'll all come to understand it and never again doubt that you love us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.